0: Welcome to this podcast, the third episode in our Construction Law Masters series. My name is James Doe, Partner and Head of Consentious Construction. I'm joined today by my Senior Associate, Emma Kurtovich. In this episode, we are talking to Professor David Mosey. Professor Mosey spent 33 years as a Specialist Construction Lawyer in private practice and was the Head of the Projects and Construction Division at Trowers and Hamlins. Since 2012, he's been the Director at the Centre of Construction Law and Dispute Resolution at King's College London. David, many thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much James, it's a pleasure. So firstly, uh, what motivated you to move from private practice to academic
1: life and as a professor? I'd say curiosity really. I think it is uh, all consuming to work in private practice as as you well know. And it's quite pleasant to find an opportunity to step back, to have space to explore ideas, And then also through the master's course and the doctoral research we do uh, to get an understanding of the perspective from young professionals. So it's a new stimulus, uh, a completely different angle uh, on a subject I thought I knew a lot about. Uh, Increasingly, I discover through academia, there's, there's a lot more to learn. And how do you think your experience as a private practice lawyer influences your work as an academic? Impact is the word. I I was very lucky in a way that universities focus increasingly on the impact of their research. I can understand that uh, in in practical terms as as, as a professional. Uh, So I was very keen to ensure that what I brought to the teaching and the research was a way to connect that to the professional world. Um, And that is indeed how it is turning out. But also, of course, I've got my own range of professional contacts uh, who uh, can be persuaded to contribute their input to the course and the research. I've got case studies from the work I've done, and I can rope in some of my friends as, as new contributors to the teaching. And is there anything about private practice that you miss? You mean apart from the money? I think that it is a, it's a new phase for me. It's got new opportunities. It's a privilege to, uh, to have a second career as an academic. So no, and I'm still in touch with so many people from private practice. It's not really been a jolt or a severance of contacts. So no, this is an interesting phase. It keeps me, keeps me well stimulated. Maybe we could just turn now to the course itself that you run at King's College. So
0: the Centre of Construction Law and Dispute Resolution offers a two-year part-time master's course. The master's course is advertised as a post-experience course. Um, That is, the students must have worked in industry for for a number of years already before attending and I guess have a certain amount of practical construction industry experience. Is it a challenge to balance the course so it addresses the more practical problems arising on projects whilst maintaining a strong academic core? Is that
1: a challenge or do That is the foundation of the whole course. I mean, this was a course set up uh, in 1987 by by John Uff, QC, and then developed by Philip Kappa, and they've always sought to address this combination of practical legal issues with real academic depth. Uh, It makes it different from other master's courses, that, that mixture of the theoretical and the vocational Uh, is essential to attract the sort of professionals we want to come on the course, but is also, as you perceive, essential uh, to make it a success, to make it interesting. All of the team members we have uh, combine academic rigor and and excellence with relevant professional experience. So we've got uh, some of them are dual qualified lawyers and engineers. All of them operate in private practice in, in one way or another. So it, it runs through the course like, like writing through a stick of rock, you know, that we're looking at academic excellence, but the context for that is the real world.
0: I think your approach of separating the lawyers from the other professionals, such as engineers or quantity surveyors, and teaching them something about construction technology is very important. Would you agree that having a detailed appreciation of how construction projects are actually run and the practical challenges that arise is a necessary requirement for a highly effective construction lawyer. I personally think it is.
1: Yeah, I'm just going to step back from that because we don't keep them... There's there's two points. One, uh, we have a part-time option and a full-time option, so we can allow students to complete the course full-time within 12 months. The reason I mention that is that it is particularly challenging. I mean, they do it successfully, they come out of it A little bit grey and exhausted, but they do it successfully. But what we do is separate them for one semester, or indeed for one module, and teach the lawyers construction technology. So that really cuts us lawyers down to size in terms of trying to understand uh, the rigour of engineering and architecture and indeed project programming. And then takes the non lawyers through a very intensive semester of contract law taught, English legal system, company law, uh, aspects like that. Then we bring them together and then they are taught as a single cohort for the remaining three taught modules basic construction law, advanced construction law, dispute resolution, and ultimately doing their dissertations. So we completely agree with your point. We need our students to understand how construction projects are run. Uh, We need them to understand practical challenges. And by bringing together these people from different disciplines, by challenging their siloed professional assumptions, you know, architects are taught with other architects, engineers with other engineers, lawyers with other lawyers. It is strange to think that these people from very different disciplines are then brought together for a project, expected to interact with each other, understand each other's assumptions. And you find that once they do start working together on the course, they acquire different perspectives, which gives them the sort of detailed uh, perception uh, that you mentioned. So we we get them to focus on, on the practicalities, and we also, through that, get them to focus on the solutions.
0: So obviously you have engineers, surveyors and other construction industry professionals on the course. Do you find that they are interested in different aspects of the law than, say, foreign
1: qualified lawyers or domestic qualified lawyers? So I'm going to to make a point now that I've been sort of itching to make in a way. Firstly, to answer your question, no, they, they come with their professional assumptions because they do have experience and therefore they have acquired a curiosity for the law through their experience, but they come with a lot of luggage drawn from their professional uh, institutional qualifications or their experience. So we have to challenge that. Uh, but they're And they think they're interested in different aspects of the law. Um, mostly uh, those who want to be arbitrators and expert witnesses versus those who want to deliver more successful projects, and we respect the intelligence and commitment of both those groups. But that's the difference to me. The, you know, there are engineers and surveyors who want to be delivering their projects more effectively through an understanding of the law. Um, there are lawyers, engineers, and surveyors who want to be involved in the intellectual and commercial challenges of dispute resolution. And what we have to do is explained to both of those groups that they need a deep understanding of each other's sphere. They have to have a 360 to 60 degree understanding of the law if they're going to do their, their job properly. Um, so once we've, once we've got through that, and we're not just playing to the gallery of people's professional aspirations, where we're saying you, you need a, 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 a deeper understanding uh, then we find that the different professional uh, input from engineers, surveyors, architects, lawyers really gives us some good perspectives and, and they all engage uh, with equal enthusiasm I, I, I you know that they shed that uh, those those assumptions those those what they thought were their expectations and they get on board with the idea of a of, of, of working as a multidisciplinary group, which is exactly what you want from people. Thank you. I think Emma's got a question.
2: Uh, yes, thank you David. It's been really interesting to hear um, about the course. It certainly sounds like a wonderful opportunity uh, for uh, lawyers and non-lawyers to learn about other disciplines. As you touched on earlier, Uh, We're recording this uh, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. So my question is, what impact has the pandemic had on this year's course, if any, and what uh, do you think the impact might be on the course moving forward?
1: Uh, That's a hell of a question. Um, The initial impact was that we suddenly had to deliver the remainder of our teaching online, and we had to arrange for our staff and our visiting lecturers to record their lectures. We then had to deliver all our revision online and we had to arrange for take-home exams. So we had a very intense period of activity. Uh, We now have uh, the very tricky prospect of planning the next academic year with options um, so that if we're allowed to be in a room with people at a certain distance, They have the opportunity to get into that room and meet each other and meet the teaching staff. But for those who cannot fly to the UK or back again uh, or fear to do so, uh, we have to make sure that they get the education they want as well. So it's a very large amount of work to create a sort of hybrid model that will meet the needs and expectations of the students. And I think that is true on many undergraduate and postgraduate courses at the moment but we're the ball is in play there a bit. we're doing this work um having got over as i say that initial really intense period of, of instant adjustment
0: and how how's it working i mean I, I get the impression it's working pretty well
1: uh, people really want the face-to-face contact so they miss that so i think the students who will be the new intake in september october Uh, will be a bit frustrated only to see people on a screen but they know that's the reality Um, and uh, as we assure them of our availability in smaller groups um, for tutorial-based face-to-face teaching I'm sure it will be fine. Um, We got very good feedback um, from students I mean I I was asked by someone over the weekend um, you know how has it gone because I've just been marking the exams so I can tell you, James, it's gone very well. They have, despite the personal and professional distraction of COVID-19, and in some cases, the fact they've been through uh, the disease themselves, they have managed to buckle down and do their revision and exams, which is a huge credit to the students, because that's really a demanding uh, period of time
0: for them. I'm sure there's some people listening to this podcast with, who are reading a huge sigh of relief to hear that. Perhaps we could move on to sort of the substantive law, if you like. What do you think have been the most significant and most interesting construction law developments over the past decade? I've given really
1: serious thought to that question. And, I mean, the first really important development, I think, has been the evolution of non-adversarial dispute resolution. The work done on implementing the FIDIC uh, DAB, now DAAB, Is really important and is credible, is developing new expertise and indeed is influencing the contract drafting bodies in the UK with NEC adopting something similar. So the idea that the parties can have greater control over their dispute resolution is a significant change I think. The next one is building information modelling. I think digital technology shines a pretty harsh light on unsatisfactory practices Disjointed approaches. You can't program a reasonable period of time. You can only program a number of weeks. You can't explain to a computer logically why the work of a design consultant is left separated by two contractual relationships and a good amount of time from the work of the manufacturer or specialist subcontractor who's going to implement it. So, in terms of integration, in terms of clarity, BIM is going to give rise to all sorts of interesting issues, not least, for example, in terms of intellectual property law and in terms of programming. And then the third one, dear to my heart, I've spent 20 years working on collaborative models focusing on clarity uh, of the way the parties work together, whereas often people say, oh, no, 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 that's all about good faith. Well, of course, as the case law on good faith ever multiplies. Um, it's suggested that just adding formulaic wording or, or a vague behavioral principle doesn't quite appear to be doing the trick. Um, so in terms of UK and international policy, um, in terms of contractual machinery, um, uh, we're getting uh some more uh demanding, I think, approaches to what we mean by collaboration and and, and strategic procurement. So um, the law in dispute resolution terms obviously follows this and picks up where people are getting it wrong, Um, but the law in in procurement and contracting terms uh, has moved at some speed over the last 10 years.
0: Well, it's interesting you mentioned BIM. I think Emma's got a question for you at the end about BIM, uh, and we'll discuss that in a moment. Which of those issues, if any of them, generate the most interest in your students? Where do they see the most interesting developments? It comes back to the
1: practical. They'll examine the theoretical in order to have a proper understanding of the law, but they come on this course in order to apply their learning. So they're interested in anything that they can apply and practice. So you see people getting their heads around issues of concurrency on delay because they just don't understand why there is a dysfunctionality there. They, you see them getting their heads around you know, why there are so many disputes, and you look at causes. Going back, there was a wonderful report by Mohan Kumaraswamy in, in Hong Kong back in, in 97, looking at the causes of disputes. And then when you analyze those in terms of inadequate data exchange, inadequate planning, the students love this because they can see it's not an inevitability that there is a dispute. Uh, you know, construction projects are so complex that it's, it's always likely something will come up. But the idea that they don't just have to sit and watch things go wrong, that they can learn techniques to influence those, always arouses their interest. These, these are young professionals, mostly young professionals, certainly you know, younger, uh, who have lots of opportunities in their career uh, to do something different. And they get very excited as they start to gain the confidence as to how they might go about this.
0: I guess it's implicit in the nature of what you're teaching that what's driving a lot of the issues and the subjects and the topics is the avoidance of disputes. It's the reality of the contentious nature of construction projects, certainly in the past, that's um, brought them to study the course. They want to avoid disputes. They want to... Manage projects better, so there aren't
1: disputes. Would you agree with that? Yes and no. I've, I pains to recognise that a lot of our students are fascinated by the process of dispute resolution, the forensics of it, the intellectual challenges, the need to represent somebody's interests successfully, um, and that is how their brains are wired, and that is what they're interested in doing, and. They want to understand the causes of disputes so that they will be successful in resolving them. Um, As I say, there are others, because of the nature of their job as well as the nature of what gets them out of bed intellectually, um, who do want to focus on avoidance, proactive risk management, um, and and solutions. There was a a thing, I I just want to go back, When when I started my career, I was a government legal advisor in Bahrain. There um, Was a wonderful man, Yusuf Shirawi, Minister of Development, and I once told him as a young man that there was some a proposal he had for a joint venture couldn't be done. It was it was contrary to the law, and he sent me a little note. He sent me a little note with a, his driver, and the note said, "David, uh, a legal adviser, in order to be effective, has to understand his master's political wish and explain how it can be put into effect. They don't tell me what I can't do," um, and I think that. You know, we we want to our, our students to understand what they can do. Uh, it doesn't matter where they want to do it. You know, if they're going to if they're going to be highly successful in dispute resolution of any type, you know, non adversarial as we call it, or, you know, or, or or arbitration or litigation, um, we want them to be thinking boldly and confidently as to how they go about it, rather than assuming that it's the same. Uh, issues that are going to come up at at and and, and and I do think that uh, when they come out of the other end of this course, um, and they're all very proud to have, have finished it successfully, um, they have some new working material for, uh, as I say, a more confident, perhaps more innovative approach. Whatever aspect they're looking at.
0: I mean, and now looking sort of looking into the future, and again coming back to sort of substantive legal issues. Which construction law issues do you think is most ripe for judicial attention? And do you expect it to be addressed soon?
1: Uh, good good. second part to that question. Uh, I'll tell you three that, that really preoccupy me. One is the interface between design creativity and efficient project delivery. I, I, I produced a book last year, which I'm obviously now promoting. Um, collaborative construction procurement and improved value uh, and I quoted Leonard Cohen um, there is a crack in everything that's how the light gets in not not in terms of, uh, of, of, of defects in a construction project we don't want to crack in everything but the point there is that we have to recognize construction projects start with a creative process of an architect or engineer who frequently is creating something that didn't previously exist Uh, which I I can't imagine how they go about it but they do and they have to have some space to do so where we seem to suffer is translating that into a systematic integrated delivery process you might argue design consultants hang on to the design too long still want to be tinkering with it during the construction phase but the process of what is a change what is a claim what is a delay um, is always contentious So I think that interface still, and it's a universal abiding issue in in any project at any level, um, uh, it will need more judicial attention, and we need to try and think how how contracts and procurement models, uh, as well as project management organisations, should go about getting that right, because I think they shy away from it. And, you know, when we have cases as we did recently uh, with an eminent firm of architects saying it was not their job to design to a budget, Um, that was someone else's problem, we realized that this universal issue is still uh, uh, with us. Um, Second issue, I think the responsibility of project managers to contractors, uh, the idea that they're meant to be objective but they're only answerable to their client is an anomaly. Um, And that just doesn't seem to me to make sense. And linked to that, I'm obviously having a go at consultants here, I've just realized, on all three fronts. Um, The responsibility of consultants for getting the procurement model right, and the contractual integration right. There's something very odd in the way that nobody is ever responsible. Uh, I've had people say it's the client's responsibility. The client knows nothing compared to all the people the client is paying. Someone somewhere says, uh, yes, we'll do a single stage design and build. We'll, we'll chuck all the liability over the wall. Uh, we'll do single stage, even if it's a bit of a gamble because we're not sure we've got the data right. Um, and, uh, and nobody's going to be sacked for doing design and build and, 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 and the professionals can, can do that work on a relatively modest fee. There's some very uh, rough and ready thinking. And consultants would turn around to me, the project managers, the QSs, and they'd be furious because they'd say, you know, we're not given time for anything more creative. We're not given enough fees for a more thorough approach. But the buck has to stop somewhere um, in terms of the way projects are set up. Um, And I'm not trying to dump liability onto consultants, but I do think judicial attention to that is wanting. Uh, the cases that emerge are fascinating, uh, but often you do get the sense that uh, there's been a conspiracy whereby the only dispute is with the contractor and somehow none of the consultant team carry a uh, decision making liability.
0: Well, it's interesting you mentioned procurement because that links neatly into the next topic that I wanted to discuss, which is the link between procurement and disputes. It's been said that disputes start at the procurement stage, and it's certainly my experience in a number of cases that that is true. And as a result of that, I mean, a significant amount of time and energy has gone into the development of construction contracts and procurement models which are less adversarial and more collaborative. Um, have you carried out any research at the centre which points to particular problems during
1: procurement that make disputes more likely? Yes, we have. Um... And um, we started when I first arrived. uh, We were working off the back of the UK 2011 government construction strategy, which, uh, following uh, the global financial crisis, uh, could have just been looking at uh, seeing who could procure who would bid the cheapest because we haven't got any money. Uh, Instead, they took a fascinating view, they combined early contractor involvement with collaborative working and BIM, um, and said that what we need is accurate information. Um, If we don't have accurate information, and people are gambling uh, on lowest price bids and making up their profit through claims, uh, that will not help quality, it will not avoid insolvencies, and it won't really save money. So we did a lot of work with the Cabinet Office uh, on creating the two-stage open book and supply chain collaboration guidance. Uh, We did uh, a separate research project, sorry, that that led to uh, our involvement in seven different trial project case studies, they're still on the government website, and indeed uh, the published two-stage open book guidance still on the government website. We then did a research programme looking at the links between procurement and BIM and contracts published in 2016, and then we really stuck our necks out Uh, because off the back of all the case studies that we looked at and the lessons we learned with the UK government, uh, we created the FAC1 Framework Alliance contract and published it as a contractual integrator, not only in the UK but overseas. Um, So we've put our money where our mouth is, really, in terms of not only researching what works and what doesn't, and we've looked very closely at where the disputes have come, and they do come on collaborative projects. It's not, they're not immune, um, but if, if so, do they come because people are being too vague or because uh, they're not really doing what they, they, they promised? And we've created this contractual integrator, this contractual glue, if you like, that you can use with your NEC or your FIDIC or your JCT Uh, to draw the parties together, to draw the projects together, indeed to draw the BIM contributions together. And I mentioned my book, I'm now going to mention it again, 50 case studies, 10 authors in seven jurisdictions, looking again at what works and what doesn't. Not not a sort of idealistic notion of uh, collaboration, but uh, a focus on collaboration as timely exchange of data to me that's what it's all about have you got the right information at the right time to make a design or cost or programming or risk decision Um, and can everybody remember where that data came from when the going gets tough later on so that you can all look at your computer screens and remember how the costs were built up rather than start to position for a dispute um, and the last thing, while I'm on this roll of, of, of our research, we're currently working with the Construction Innovation Hub and the Centre for Digital Built Britain, uh, examining right across infrastructure and construction the work of high-performing clients and teams. Again, very, very deliberately looking at what is working and what is not. So I suppose what that says is, however much we look at this, there's always more to look at. However many case studies you produce, you're not going to get a conclusive piece of evidence that shows what works and what doesn't. But step by step, we're getting a really good understanding uh, of what we mean by a collaborative approach, what we mean by an efficient approach. Thank you. You're, you're more than welcome to plug your book.
0: That's. No <laughs> problem with that. I think Emma's got a few questions for you, just developing on that partnering, alliancing uh, theme.
2: That's right. David, you've just been speaking about partnering, alliancing and other models of collaborative working, and as you said earlier, this approach towards greater collaboration is one of the most significant changes in the construction industry in the last decade. You authored the PPC 2000 suite of partnering contracts to much acclaim, and my question for you is, what are the key issues with traditional procurement strategies that collaborative contracting seeks to address? or to put that another way, what are the key drivers towards collaborative contracting?
1: Okay, well, I could give you 560 pages on that, or I could give you three minutes. Sir so Michael Latham expressed this very well back in 1994, and he looked at timing, he looked at programming. We still haven't got that right. FIDIC certainly haven't got it right at all. NEC did, NEC have got, are on top of it. You know. Programming not in terms of critical path analysis, but in terms of who relies on whom, and how do you connect the parties to each other in in a complete way. That, to me, defines collaborative uh, working very well. Um, This sense of fairness uh, is much harder to grasp, and I don't think that we can really nail that one down. It's it's the the willingness to, to do something new, and I suppose you link that to commercial motivation. You need an incentive scheme. Uh, uh, NEC, I think, is a little bit fixated with its pain game share. Uh, I think there are other ways of rewarding the parties, and, and, and I think NEC's weakness is in its optional approach to early contractual involvement. I cannot see how you can have a collaborative approach appear out of nowhere just because you've contracted for it. Um, I think joint planning... Uh, that gives rise to the timely exchange of data so everybody knows the full picture by the time they start on site is a strong feature of collaborative involvement. And that then enables joint risk management. Again, I keep picking on NEC. I mean, they're terrific with their approach to risk management on site. Um, But like FIDIC, they have a formula around reasonable foreseeability as if that is the answer. In reality, there's so much you can do to explore different risk perceptions and possibly reduce those risks during the pre-construction phase. Now you mentioned PPC2000, it's it's not a a force in in, in the procurement world like FIDIC or or NECR, but it has been extremely successful. Firstly, again as a BIM integrator at project level the big BIM case studies of Ministry of Justice uh, used PPC2000 and it's The ICE, the RIBA have all recognised the strength of that. But it's combined that with the mandate of early conditional contractor appointments, enabling an exploration of how consultants' work is connected to manufacturers' and subcontractors' work, how costs are really built up, how people have assumed uh, risk situations based on prior experience, whether that's right or not whether there's anything they can do to help each other reduce those risks. So I think we have some serious features there. In an ideal world, you would want lessons learned on other projects. I I think it is, unless it's a great big project, very hard to have effective collaboration that's confined to one project because the team disbands just as it's getting a grip on how each other work and what makes each team member tick. Um, but you know you've got as many projects as you've got so you can't have that as an essential. Um, Contracts are therefore process documents here, they're not just risk allocation, they are uh, instruments for project planning, instruments for connecting the team members together, instruments for revisiting bid assumptions, particularly engaging uh, in a review of uh, how subcontractors work. I think they're the Cinderella at the party. They get left out of the of the thinking. Um, and if you can use contracts in that way, whether it's PPC or whether it's uh, uh, an evolution of FIDIC, uh, which I would like to see, uh, whether it is uh, picking up all the relevant NEC options and and, and making sure you use them. Uh, you know, NEC really can do a great job if 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 you if you apply all the options. Um, then you get contracts uh, doing something that we can see as as genuinely collaborative because to me, collaboration, as I say, it's about data and it's about integration.
2: Thank you. So what types of projects do you think are best suited to a collaborative model and why?
1: Oh, crikey. Um, That's a really interesting one. Any project is. But... Um, If you look at the evolution of of collaborative projects, for example, in Australia, I think a lot of the thinking there was around large scale uh, infrastructure projects like roads, rail, that were very hard to ever achieve a fixed price on. And some of the original NEC projects in the UK uh, were adopting the same approach. So they were motivating a joint uh, incentive to manage cost um, not artificially fixed cost uh, so what I'm saying is that the approach to collaboration there is partly directed to the imponderables of a project that you know could otherwise just be remeasurable um, whereas for a building even a quite a complex building um, that where you can achieve a fixed price um, without dumping unreasonable risk on a contractor um, the focus of the collaboration can be more in the planning and more in the testing of the data. Um, So I think it's any project can be collaborative. What I'm trying to avoid are these knee-jerk reactions of we must have uh, cost plus, we must have pain gain, we must have a no-blame exemption for a normal liability because all that does is narrow down the number of clients and teams who are going to go anywhere near it. Um, uh, You know, we need a broad church. Um, I had a very interesting presentation from one of the US gurus of collaborative working, Howard Ashcraft, uh, who came and spoke at one of our conferences. Now, he does a lot of work in the uh, space of, uh, of, of cost plus effectively, incentivized cost plus, but... One of the delegates said, well, you know, is that the only business model you use? And he said, no, in in, in the 120 collaborative projects he's adopted, he's probably had 35 business models. Um, We mustn't be dogmatic in our approach to collaboration because that does inevitably narrow the, the range of suitable projects.
0: Yeah, David. It's it's certainly my experience that collaborative contracting is far far more common in public sector infrastructure projects um, than it is in private practice. We, we're just starting to see, and obviously, because we're disputes lawyers, we tend to see these things coming through quite quite late. You know, many years after the projects have actually been executed. But we're starting to see NEC three being used on private sector projects, although for the most part they are infrastructure projects, they're just privately executed infrastructure. Do you genuinely believe that we will see more collaborative contracting in the private sector, or do you think the private sector is wedded to the more old-fashioned ways of doing things, or, or commercially they just find that adopting you know, very stringent risk allocation, for example, EPC contracts,
1: just makes their life a lot easier? You mentioned NEC. It is an excellent form of contract, but I don't see it as synonymous with collaborative procurement. I think collaborative procurement is about the processes and the relationships you adopt rather than the contract form you choose. So I've seen public sector clients leaving their collaborative because they've adopted NEC, but not actually using the collaborative systems. I've also seen private sector clients, as I'm sure you have, who have adopted all sorts of really intelligent collaborative practices they just haven't given them the names that uh, would make it easier for people to recognize Um, so yes private sector drivers there is a a strong sense of competitive tension there between clients not only between contractors Um, so it is harder to uh, seek or insist on shared practices in the private sector but I've seen changes. With the publication of FAC1, we saw the Football Foundation, not, not a public sector body, as one of the first users. We've seen contractor-led initiatives by Kier, by Skanska. Uh, we've seen energy companies, I, whom I can't name because the ball is in play there, adopting the FAC approach. And I think that that's sometimes in combination with their own bespoke project for they're very comfortable with, as well as uh, sometimes with JCT or NEC or or FIDIC or or PPC. So that what that tells us is the the form of delivery contract on the ground is only one part of the collaborative picture. The way that they knit together the different uh, elements of a big project, the way they knit together the different contributions uh, to design, whether that's through BIM or otherwise, the way they learn from one project to another needs to be contractualized. The way they link the capital phase of the project to the operational phase, which we often neglect, uh, is really important. And we learned all of that through PFI, and then somehow lost sight of it in terms of integrated delivery. So I'm very optimistic. I mean, I usually look at utility companies like Anglian Water. They are leaders in the collaborative space. So I think, I think we're breaking down that barrier. And I think if we can find a way to understand and respect what private sector organizations do, what they are able to share in terms of best practice. And, and again, we don't oversimplify what is or is not collaborative, then that is fine because, because where we have evidence that a, an integrated collaborative model improves value, reduces risk, improves safety, improves sustainability why why would they not want to adopt that approach I, th- I think we have still somewhere deep in people's psyche the idea that it's a soft approach to collaborate and that the sort of grown-up uh uh commercial approach is adversarial i think that's a, a, a fallacy um, we, we mentioned at the beginning
0: of this podcast um the increased interest in construction law by international lawyers, international project participants. Do you see an increasing interest amongst your international students in collaborative contracting generally? Um, because certainly it's my experience that of all the various aspects of construction practice, it's in the international sector where you see these behaviours least. Uh, the default position is turnkey contracting, risk out, you know, placing all the risk on the contractors, There there are good reasons why that that happens when you have project-financed construction projects in terms of bankability and what have you. But increasingly, certainly my front-end colleagues are working on ways in which you can make collaborative, contracting, bankable uh, and more attractive to international participants. But, But just coming back to the question, how much
1: interest are you seeing from your international students in this area? Well... It's not only my international students, it's my international contacts. And I do think we have a a bit of a breakthrough. Um, So with apologies for framing it in in the context of of the FAC1 form, Um, but this was published in 2016. It's been adopted on 45 billion pounds worth of procurement in the UK, because it's become the medium for the UK government. As well as for, as I say, a range of private sector clients. So, all that is good. But in the context of your question, it's already been translated into six other languages. So, it was translated into Italian uh, in 2017 and immediately adopted on an Italian project, which has now been built. And that was an Italian project using BIM. Uh, there are two other Italian procurements adopting it, uh, but it's been translated into German, Bulgarian. Uh, Portuguese for use in Brazil, Russian uh, for use in Peru. Um, This is extraordinary to me. Um, And uh, we wait and see how that goes. But but again, I'm sorry not to be able to mention names, but I've been contacted by an international energy company that wants to trial this contract on a major wind project and a major solar project in Brazil and Spain. Um, And they've gone away and funded it for themselves. And what they're doing, and this is, this is very close to home for you, James, is they're saying, we like EPC contracts, um, but they're not the full picture. Um, and we want to integrate our feed contract with our EPC contracts. We want access to the specialists behind our EPC contract. We want to understand the operational features of, of the EPC uh, structure. In other words, yes, we rely on a major contractor, to deliver us a plant that we will perform, but we're not going to do that blind, um, and we're going to uh, integrate our uh, consultants' roles, our specialists' roles in the preparation, of the EPC contract, in the delivery team behind the EPC contractor, and in the ongoing operation. Um, that is a big thing for the Russians. Um, we'll wait and see how they, they use it. Um, it's a big thing for the Brazilians. So. Um, it seems to me, um, you know, and my experience is similar to yours, you know, that the international reliance on lump sum EPC turnkey contracts is being challenged, not to throw those away, but to try and pick up some of the missing links and the missing uh, structure, uh, fabric of, 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 of how contracts can, can, can improve Uh, The delivery processes and the relationships. So the students are fascinated by it um, and picking up on it very quickly. Um, I think that um, the facility for using FAC to fill the blanks rather than to insist people throw away what they're familiar with allows uh, experimentation, the flexibility of FAC allows lawyers like your front-end colleagues uh, to make it work. It's not uh, sticking a single imprint on on the way of doing things. And the fact that it, is, it doesn't have English law in it, it is, it is, it is a contract designed for international use, uh, leaves the door open for uh, people in multiple jurisdictions to come through. So I, I see that as uh, absolutely fascinating. Uh, we formed an international best practice group for the adopters of it. Uh, of of, of the form Um, and and I suppose you know you might say why are you banging on about this single published form Um, you know we Kings and and, and, and its joint venture partners uh, take some royalties from this and and you will know there's, there's no money to be made in publications but to have a stable starting point seems to me crucial you know, we've used our standard form contracts to have a stable starting point in construction over the years. What we've failed to do is find one that breaks the fixed paradigm of, of a pyramid of two-party contracts often entered into too late. Um, so if we have that starting point, then obviously we allow people to adapt to the requirements of their sector and the requirements of their jurisdiction. So I I, I think that that uh, not only has a commercial impact but it intellectually it's very interesting as well. I think
0: what's fascinating about what you've just said is certainly my experience internationally is very often people get bogged down in, oh we've got to use a FIDIC form of contract, yellow, red, yellow, silver, uh, whatever whatever it is. And what, what is fascinating from what you've said is that actually people have started to realise that there is a different way of doing things. You can if you're familiar with using a FIDIC silver or another sort of EPC type model, yes, there are, there are advantages to doing that, but there are other ways in which you might be able to adapt it to make it more, uh, more productive, more efficient. I think that's fascinating and I think it's, it's long overdue and I, and I guess it's incumbent upon all of us who are experienced in construction law and practice uh, to encourage clients to be as, even as the they can be, and we're there to assist them where we can uh, with that. So there
1: isn't just one way of doing things. That's that's the short point. Yes, absolutely. And I think also you don't flip from pure fidic to pure bespoke. I think this is this is and this is this is a bit ironic because obviously as a private practice lawyer, I spend a lot of time drafting bespoke contracts, and it's a lot of fun. Um, I think I would encourage your uh, front-end colleagues and front-end lawyers everywhere to recognize that a flexible, open standard form gets the best of both worlds. It gives us a a way of doing things differently, uh, a way of combining with a FIDIC, if people want to combine it with a FIDIC or with uh, one of those typical contracts that is used in in the oil sector, those logic contracts. But it also gives the creative legal drafts people somewhere to do their creative drafting, but not starting from scratch. Every time you start from scratch with a bespoke document, the marketplace bidders have to read every single line. And however good you're drafting, they will be very suspicious that there are tricks in there because you've been paid by the client to create that form. So you know, on the one hand, you're right; people are slavishly following a fidic form as if there's no alternative. On the other hand, they're paying for bespoke forms that have a very limited potential, partly because uh, they're alien and unfamiliar to the marketplace, and nobody takes any notice of how to subcontract behind this bespoke form, um, and, and partly because the, the people that people are unfairly suspicious of them if they've come from. Uh, from a legal drafts person, So I, I feel that, that we're, we're forging a path that takes a lot of people with us uh, by recognising life's realities and, and recognising that people need to deploy their drafting skills uh, in uh, a way that has uh, the best effect.
0: Thank you, David. I know Emma wanted to ask you a quick question on BIM. So over to you, Emma.
2: Thanks, James. So, David, one of your areas of specialty is the impact of digital technology on procurement and contracts. And BIM has been mentioned several times throughout this podcast. And you said earlier that the introduction of BIM was one of the biggest game changers in the construction industry. So for years, we've been discussing the use of BIM. However, it's relatively relatively rare to see BIM being used in practice. Personally, I've yet to be involved in a dispute where BIM has been a feature. So it may be that the use of BIM has resulted in fewer disputes, but more realistically, it seems to me, is that the uptake of BIM has been very slow. So would you agree? And if so, why do you think the industry has been relatively slow to adopt BIM?
1: There are many interesting issues here. The IT people have felt the need to reinvent the construction terminology. That was a terrible mistake. So it looked like a parallel universe. Uh, it disconnected BIM from contractual terminology that we're all familiar with. Uh, and that made a lot of work to, to resolve those discrepancies. That was one thing. The other thing with technological progress is people never stand still. So having crafted Level 2 BIM, they romped on to Level 3 before there was real understanding and adoption. And now they talk about other levels in a digital world. I mean, it's fascinating intellectually. It's fascinating technically. But we know that the enormous construction and engineering sector need to be helped to work with the art of the possible rather than being forever challenged with uh, new ideas blasted at them from every quarter. So I don't think enough work was done to reconcile the terminology and methodology of BIM with the way that people go about their current work. Uh, I think it was. Uh, I think that's unfortunate. I also think that people protect their uh, corner. So it was extraordinary to me that the first edition of the CIC BIM protocol in two thousand and thirteen reduced the duty of care to reasonable endeavours and created an overarching ground for extension of time, and then said, "Oh, well, this overrides the building contracts." I mean, for lawyers, that is that's a bad thing. You know, I think mean, people would. Really, should think twice uh, before recommending the CIC BIM protocol as a way forward because it's, it's undercutting the commercial norms, uh, allegedly in the interest of attracting more people to BIM. Well, it hasn't worked and it hasn't been clear enough. So, so I feel that we, you know, we have a good thing there, which really clarifies uh, data exchanges, really clarifies risk assessment, really gives everybody uh, a good working tool but we need to be bolder as to how it is contractualized. Uh, you will have seen, I think, the rather half-hearted approach by JCT and NEC. I'm gonna lose a lot of friends in this last exchange um, because they don't go beyond addendums to two-party contracts. You've seen FIDIC. I know they've got a protocol coming out later this year, but you know, just giving advisory notes in the end of the 2017 edition, and it is because they haven't felt able to jump beyond the fixed paradigms of the existing published forms. I hate to sound like a broken record, but the work that we're doing with the Center for Digital Built Britain is in part looking at how FAC1 can fill those gaps by saying, yep, you you work with your NEC contracts, you work with your FIDIC contracts, but BIM requires a contractual integration around a single timetable, an integrated set of deliverables, mutual intellectual property licenses that are not policed by the client through endless two party contracts, but that actually connect the parties together. In other words, let us take something that facilitates BIM in line with the new international standard ISO 19650 expressly requires collaboration, not once, about 10 times in the treatment of risk, in the treatment of timing, in the integration of the parties. We need to run with that. So it's a bit like collaboration, which is there are contract-based solutions that I think could encourage people to do BIM and to do it properly without us only focusing on the next stage of white hot technology.
2: Thank you, David. And I think you've probably touched on this uh, already in in your previous answer, but what role do you see sort of information systems like BIM playing in collaborative contracting?
1: I think they go hand in hand. I think BIM is a wonderful enabler for collaborative contracting. And Richard Saxon, who's such a terrific commentator, I mean, he's chair of JCT, so I'm sure he'll forgive me my remarks in relation to JCT if ever he listens to this podcast. But he said, you know what collaborative procurement needed was bim, and he was so right you know we we get fixated on good faith, and that just generates more and more litigation. <laughs> we get fixated on no blame, and you have to have a legal definition of that, so again, that as a formula will just give us our- not. what we actually need are systems of integration, and BIM is a terrific system of integration, so to me. The Government Construction Strategy 2011 got it right by linking early contractor involvement collaborative working and BIM, and all of the evidence uh, supports that. The two go well together as long as we're clear, as long as we don't get bamboozled by the science or distracted by, as I say, a more formulaic approach to collaboration.
0: David? Thank you so much for your time today. It's been fascinating and a great pleasure to, to finally meet you, even if it is uh, virtually. So thank you very much indeed for your time. And uh, I look forward to meeting you in person at some point in the future.
1: Well, James, Emma, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I will look forward to hearing this podcast and I'll look forward to hearing others.